Good morning. How many of you are, are here in your first semester? Just curious here. All right, welcome, welcome. Yeah, you've had syllabus shock, I suppose, by, by now already. You've, um, you've opened up your syllabus and realized that they want me to accomplish all of this work in one semester. And uh, um, I, I just went through that again. I've, I'm in my 10th year of school now, and um, hopefully I'm going to be done one of these years. But um, I opened up my syllabus recently. I'm taking two classes, and, um, and it was um, at Capitol Seminary, and, and I'm taking them kind of in a mixed cohort kind of thing online and, and on campus combined. And, and um, I opened up my syllabus. It's like, you got to be kidding me. This is my last semester of my, uh, of my normal coursework, and I, and I got 14 books to read in two classes. I thought, there's absolutely no way that I can do that. And, um, and then I started looking at the written assignments, and for two classes, there's uh, close to 200 pages of, of, um, of research papers due. And I thought, there's absolutely no way I can do that. I remember my first semester in the undergraduate program in Pennsylvania. I walked onto campus, and, and I, I thought Bible college was going to be this time where we just kind of go and hear these amazing speakers. And um, I was married at the time, had, had three little kids. And, um, and, and then we'd go home and play with the kids at the end of the day. And I had no idea there was going to be assignments. I thought it was going to be a lot like church. You know, I'm just going to go there, and I'm going to sit there, and I'm going to absorb all this stuff. And I'm going to go home after... Four years of doing this, I'll go out and I'll be a pastor somewhere. And I never really realized that's how naive I was, that there was actually work to do. It's probably because I never did any in high school. And, um, and so I didn't think there would be any in college either. So, boy, I was wrong. And um, so it's Jim's fault that I'm in Montana. It actually is. Um, it's actually his fault that I'm still in school, too. And so we have a really good relationship. Remember what you told me. You said, Mark, five years will go by and either you will have done it or you won't. And uh, here it's been now three years and uh, almost, and, uh, and it's just about done. So, um, But anyway, it's good to be here. I enjoy, um, I enjoy coming onto the campuses, and I enjoy, um, I, I love uh, biblical education. Um, I love this opportunity. The, just think about this. The, the things that you're learning right now are going to be the formative process that carries you through life in ministry in the years to come. So I encourage you, establish those patterns and habits right now because the patterns and habits that you're establishing right now today are going to be the ones that you're going to carry through into life and ministry in the future. Mark my word. Ask any non-traditional student or any other um, older staff member here, they'll say, absolutely, the patterns and habits that I've uh, developed in my life right now are those that I have started with and I've carried on. And it's true. In Bible college settings, we often, we often get these top-shelf type of things. Uh, it's a lot of um, uh, foundational theology, a lot of uh, theory, and a, a, a lot of... And sometimes there's a lot of disillusion. How do I bring this down and make it practical? How do I make this real for me? How do I take the truth of God's Word and live it out in my life? And that's the perennial question I'm always asking. I want to know not only why I believe what I believe and how those foundational truths, but I also understand what does it look like today to live and walk with Jesus, the Savior? That's the question we're always asking. What does ministry look like fleshed out in our lives when the power of the Spirit and the Word of God is impressing upon our heart and our lives and our hands? What's that look like? That's what I love about one of the little books in the New Testament. It's a book that I've been taking our church through, and it's a book I want to open up to you today. It's in First Thessalonians. 
What an amazing, what an amazing practical book. When I was a little kid, I, I, um, my mother had to keep the, the snack foods out of my reach. And my wife is still doing that today. Um, but, but she had to because I was always wanting to eat junk food. And, and it shows, I know. But anyway, so I, um, she kept the cookies up high. And um, what a great illustration that's been for me. But I climbed, I climbed up the something, got there and got in the cookies and had them all over the kitchen floor. And I was eating them as a little kid and came in. And she, her, her weapon of choice was a pancake turner. And so that's what I, I met her pancake turner after that deal. But I, but I thought about going on in life, how oftentimes the things that are, that are really good are up high. And, and we, don't, we don't really know how to access them and get them down to the kitchen floor level. The book of 1 Thessalonians does that. The Apostle Paul, an amazing theologian, I mean, doctrinal and and, and systematic and and orderly, and and we can read and extract a lot of theology from his writings. It's amazing. But the question that we always ask is, so what does that look like today? How does that affect, how do do all these doctrines and and all the theology, how does it affect life today? And it has a profound effect on life today, and it should in our own lives and ministry as well. And in 1 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul extracts all those truths, and he gives us a picture of life in, in, in a normal context of doing ministry. and says, this is what it looks like when it's all fleshed out. When you've got everything connected together, this is what it looks like. And it's like, wow, that's where I want to be. Those are the passages that draw me in. This is how I want Will Sal Community Church to engage your community in one another and the lost, you know, with, with, the, with the message of the gospel. And so we've been going through and extracting these things and looking at them and saying, what does this look like for us today? And I, I would like to challenge you in a couple areas here because you guys are all headed into life and ministry. Most of you are, are, are younger students and, and traditional students and you've got an entire lifetime of experiences and you've come here to Bible colleges. You just got your syllabus and you've, you're in all these classes and you're getting all this, this stuff poured at you. And, and sometimes sorting through this stuff is really, really hard. And it's overwhelming. Besides that, you have this disillusionment that's come on here because coming into a Bible college, you always think, I, I mean, I honestly thought it was going to be like going to heaven. I thought it was going to be going to a place where no one sinned. Talk about foolish. And th- they used to not sin before I got there, but then when I got there, everyone started sinning, obviously. But, but there's this disillusionment that comes upon our mind when you're in the church or when you're in the, in the in a, especially in the Bible class, like, we're all spiritually mature people here and we don't do anything wrong. We, we walk around with our Bibles and we greet one another with calm Christian voices, you know, how we talk when we're in front of other Christians. And, and, um, and we, you guys don't do that here, I know. But, but some places they do that. There's Christian voices like, hi, how are you doing? It's a good day. Praise the Lord, yeah. You know, I thought about that recently, and we've been gone through a lot here recently, and, and please don't, don't feel sorry for me. We, we're claiming the power of God, but in a one-month period of time, we had a family reunion, lost a grandchild, lost a father, and wrecked our car. And it's like, wow, how do you process this? That's the, that's the ugliness of life. That's the reality of life. And the reality is you come to a place like this and, and sometimes relationships aren't what they're supposed to be. Sometimes we, we rub one another wrong and we're worn and we're raw and we're doing life together and we don't understand exactly how everything fits together. And 
That's what I love about this little book of Thessalonians because the Apostle Paul tells us how it should fit together. He shows us some, he allows us to ask some questions that, that, really, that really point to our perspective. You know, I was thinking, especially going to college, wouldn't it be great if you could, um, if you could read one another's minds? Do you know how practical that would be? It, you're getting scared already, aren't you? Yeah. But, but think about this. If you could read one another's minds, wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be kind of handy? Like you're, you're sitting down and, and you're, 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 you're getting ready for a, for a test in theology class. And um, you're reading over the questions and you haven't studied as well as you should have. And you're thinking, oh, the one who always answers the questions in the class is sitting right up there. Oh, okay, got it. And you could just jot that down. School would be a breeze. You could read the professor's minds and say, well, this is what they're thinking, and that would be really, really handy. How about for dating purposes? Do they like me or not? Do you think they like me? You don't have to think that at all. You, all you have to do is like, oh, <laughs> I better choose someone else here. They don't like me. You know, that would be really handy. It'd be kind of scary, too. <laughs> but you know what's even scarier than somebody reading your mind? would be as if somebody could, could read your, your motivations. Your motivations. The things that drive what you do. Think about that. Why are you here? What is the reason that you're here? I know we, 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 we put it to the sovereignty of God. Well, I'm here because God wants me to. I, we learned that in class. But why are you here? What are the motivations that bring you to the point what are the expectations? What are the reasons that drive our behaviors? Those things um, probe at my mind over and over again. Mark, why do you really like being a pastor? Is it because you desire power or control over people? Those are fair questions to ask, aren't they? For those of us going into ministry. And I'll tell you this, the reason why. Look in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because the Apostle Paul is going to ask the same questions through the text of chapter 2. It's an amazing passage that cuts through the thick of life and says, listen, let's just take a moment, Paul says, and check our own hearts and see where we're at so that right now we can make the adjustments and be where God wants us to be. Listen to this. The first four verses here, and I'm going to breeze through the first four verses of chapter 2 because they're really talking about the nature of ministry. This is the nature. This is the the substance of what ministry really is. So if if you have this preconceived idea about what life and ministry is going to be like as a pastor, a missionary, a pastor's wife, a Christian ed worker, a counselor, here's the the truth of what it's going to be like. Forget everything that you've learned and, and, and listen to what he says. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. That sounds like a nice, pleasant ministry. How's ministry? It's very joyful. We're suffering persecution in Philippi and much conflict. Verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error nor uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. Here it is in verse 4. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God who tests, God who tests our hearts. 
Not a God who reads our mind to see what we're thinking, but a God who tests our hearts to see what the motivation is. And verse 4 is an amazing verse. It's really ministries of stewardship. It's not yours. It's God and God's, and He has given it to you. The wording in the Greek here is, is that God has faith in you. The word pistis is used. And God has faith in you that you will handle this ministry in the right way. Folks, that is a sobering verse in the Bible. It is a sobering verse to anyone who wants to represent God, who says, God, I want to be a steward of that which you have entrusted to me and care for what you've done for me and given to me. That's sobering to me. How am I, how am I stewarding the gift God has given to me of the gospel? That's the question that, that cries out. And Paul's going to probe a little bit. In fact, in these next verses, the next four verses is where we're going to focus at, just for a couple minutes here. And, and there's four questions that arise out of the next four verses, five, six, seven, and eight. Listen to these questions. He will, he will put them out as statements, but I'll turn them into questions. Verse five. The God who tests our hearts, he says, for neither at any time... Did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness? God is witness. There's the witness of God who's reading below the level of conscience to to the emotions, to the motivation that we have for being in ministry. And, and, And Paul says, God is a witness that at no time did we use the ministry position that we have as a cloak of covetousness. That's kind of a hard verse to understand when you just, at first reading, it's like, what's he talking about? A cloak of covetousness. To covet is to desire, to, to desire something to bring to our own heart, or our own selves. And a cloak of covetousness is to use deception on the basis of your position for personal gain. And so the question is this. In the course of our ministry, can, are we able to abandon our own desires to serve other people? And that's not a question you should answer publicly. In fact, you may give the wrong answer publicly. I know what it's like to stand in front of a Bible college group and say, you know what, I, my desire is to glorify God and to serve other people and, and, and to die to myself. And that's, that's popular to say, it's biblical to say, it's scriptural to say. It's edifying to say, and we convince one another we're doing it. But remember, God isn't looking here. He's looking down at the heart level. And so we ask ourselves difficult questions. Am I in this to make, it, make me look or to gain something that's not mine? Here, here's, the, here, here's the point. Um, 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 2.5 is a verse that will judge many pastors and spiritual leaders and strip them of every reward at the judgment seat of Christ. And I say it this way. How many of you know of a pastor or a ministry leader who has abused their position of authority for personal gain? Just raise your hand. Have you, do you know or have heard of someone who has abused their spiritual position and authority for personal gain? It's sad. It's horrible. And there's Paul saying, in a practical way, you know the theology, you know the truth, but here's the reality. Don't abuse your spiritual authority to bring personal gain. 
And I know how it works in the, in the pastoral ministry. I've, I've shepherded pastors, other pastors for years, and I counsel them on this basis of this verse. I said, warning, there's going to be times when, when you're going to have power over other people. And, that, and that's one of the things from the, from the very beginning of time, from, since the fall, that, that has been abused in the, in the spiritual leadership. People have abused their position of authority to gain some kind of unmet emotional needs in their lives. It's sad. It's why pastors run off with secretaries. It's, it's why, it's why um, um, children are abused and everything else. And I'll tell you, 1 Thessalonians 2.5 2, um, is a practical verse that deals with it. Paul says, my motivation, it didn't even go there. That's incredible to think about that. Nor at any time did we use covetousness as a cloak for personal gain. We didn't use it to gain money. And, and by the way, a lot, of it's, a lot of it's just, you know, for, for gaining the affirmation of other people, perhaps. I can, I can tell you this. We have to rest in the affirmation that God gives us as, as being positioned in Christ and saying, that's my affirmation. Because it's addictive to somehow connect ministry position with success. And you've got you to strive hard not to do that in your life. So the question number one is, can you abandon your own desires and serve others? Can you say that, Lord, this is my life, you can have it. My motivation is to serve other people, to have the privilege of serving as Jesus served, and to not to, to reap rewards upon myself and, and status and symbols and all those other things, but to simply be a servant of the Most High God. It's an amazing thing to think about. I think about you being in a little Bible college tucked away in a, in a mountain community in a, in a little state. Well, you're big state physically, but little in population and kind of off the radar of so many people. You might, you might receive more prestige and more notice if you're in, a more, in more of an elite school, perhaps. And I admire you for saying, you know what, I want to be in a place where God is using people on the Thessalonians level to ground us in truth and say, this is what it looks like in our lives when it's fleshed out. I admire you for that. That's an incredible thing. And, and you can see the history of, of how God has used NBC in the lives of, 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 of students who have been here and for the purposes of the kingdom. And it's amazing to see that. It's encouraging to see that. It doesn't happen everywhere. Trust me, I've been in about every Bible college in, across the country. And this is a special thing that's going on here in Montana. You're fortunate and blessed by God to be here and to have the, the, the focus and the attention on discipleship. Question number two, look at verse six. It goes on, Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Wow. The temptation of leadership is, in the, is, is that you're in it for the wrong motivation. Paul says, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. The idea, the question here is, are you doing this for yourself or for God? It's similar to the first one. The first one was, what, what am I to gain off of this? Can I abandon my own desires to serve others? But are you doing this for yourself or for God? Is this, a, is this an effort to improve yourself or an effort to serve the Lord? And, and the humility is here. I mean, our, our hearts need humility. Someone once said that in this life, we're either going to receive glory from men or bring glory to God, one or the other. But we'll never do both at the same time. When we're receiving glory from men, we're not giving glory to God. And Paul would agree with that. Turn back just a, a couple pages to 1 Corinthians. 
uh, chapter 4. 1 Corinthians 4. This is an amazing passage. You should memorize this, this passage of Scripture. It's just it's phenomenal when you think about this, motivations and ministry. Um, this stuff's all over the Bible. You know, the, isn't the Bible simple? I mean, really, it's just like, I just want to know what should my heart attitude be, and we can just read it right here. Listen to this. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's just what we read already. It says the same thing in this book as it did in the other. Imagine that. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I know of nothing against myself, yet I'm not justified this. But he who judges me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time until the Lord comes, who will bring both, who will both bring to light the hidden things of darkness and reveal the counsels of the hearts. There's motivation, isn't it? Why are you doing what you're doing? And I'm doing this how? Then each one's praise will come from whom? God. God. So we deny praise now so that God may bring us praise later. Pretty simple, isn't it? So really, we have to ask ourselves, am I doing this now to receive praise from God, or am I doing this for God now to receive praise from him later? And, and it really takes the pressure off of ministry. So now I don't have to please everyone. I don't have to spend my life trying to please everyone and just so I can get the praise from them. I can defer that knowing that I want to be faithful to the word of God so that tomorrow, in my tomorrow, which will be um, who knows, it may be tomorrow, maybe today. It may be 100, no, it won't be 100 years from now. I'm, I'm older, I wouldn't live to be 153. Uh, someday, I will receive praise from God. Sorry, I, I, I did flunk math, and that's just a weak area. Um, question, though, are you doing this for yourself, or are you doing this for God? Are you in it to seek glory from men or bring glory to God? And that's what Paul says, that's a motivation of our heart. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And these are great times to make adjustments in your life. You say, okay, I started off on the wrong reason here. I'm, I'm kind of pushing towards this. I just want to make an adjustment and move to this. Question number three. This is, um, this is amazing. Um, what a beautiful picture. Verse, um, let me go back here. Verse seven but we were gentle among you. This is in First Thessalonians 2. But we were gentle among you, just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. There's nothing more beautiful than a mother caring for a child. There's this air of gentleness and, um, and, and, and care and nurture that goes there. Now listen, transfer that to, to the ministry. That's what's being had. Paul says, the way I dealt with you was just like a mother um, caring for her child, nursing her child. There's this attitude of, of creating an atmosphere that feeding can take place. Wow. That's amazing. Do you understand? That's what your instructors are doing for you in the classroom. They're creating an, an atmosphere so that feeding can take place. An atmosphere of gentleness. It might be of humor, it might be of prodding and, 
and, and things. But it's, it's gentle. The ministry is gentle. We don't do forced conversions. I used to be a deputy sheriff in Nebraska for 13 years. Our church grew really, really quickly. Um, we saw about 25% of the town come to faith in Christ. But here's the cool thing. It was all by forced conversions. I was a deputy sheriff. So I'd go out and I'd arrest people. And I'd tell them, you know, hey, listen, you want Jesus or jail? Your choice. And they're like, uh-huh, not me. I'll take Jesus. And so I would, we'd do forced conversions. And, um, and then I read this passage here, and I realized that was all wrong. So I quit doing that. I just took him to jail anyway. I didn't do that. Don't, don't go. We met this guy, and he, did, he held a gun to their head and said, you want to do that? No. 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 Gentleness. Gentleness. That permeates the ministry. And, um, and so the question number three is, can you serve with gentleness? Can you serve with gentleness? Can you be gentle with people? You know, people are messed up. They are. I'm messed up. And so are you. We're messed up. We're carrying around baggage from all over the place and, 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 the, and the wounds that people have given to us and, and broken relationships and hurtful words. And, and, and so we come into the context of ministry and, and sometimes it's like, why don't you just act like a Christian? And, and, and I, someone says, well, I can see you are. because I mean, we, we get this preconceived notion and, and there's this whole idea that, that it ought to be better than what it is. Listen to this in his, in his book, Life, doing life together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you want to pronounce it like he does, Dietrich Bonhoeffer suggests that perhaps the greatest threat to biblical community is self. The greatest threat to biblical community, that's that idea of having communion with one another together in the Lord. The biggest threat to biblical community is self. That, that problems arise when believers expect more out of others than they can reasonably give. I'll tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've done that in my own life. I've projected expectations upon my sheep that they should be behaving in a way more so than what they're capable of doing because I don't know what's happened in their past. I, I don't understand that. And it's not as simple as saying, let's tag a verse to it and somehow let's spray this with a Colossians 2 or, or whatever and somehow that problem's going to go away because it doesn't. It doesn't. That's the reality. And the reality is that we have to be gentle and come alongside. The favorite word of the Apostle Paul related to counseling is what? Beseech. Parakaleo. I, I come alongside you and speak into your life. Not standing on the sidelines and pointing my fingers and yelling, but I'm, I come alongside. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. As a prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, brethren, to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. And over and over we see this, this idea, you know, we come to the shores of Galilee and, and, and we're broken and we're worn and we're sinful and we're deniers and we come together. We, we, we seek to be fed by Jesus. And friends, you need one another to do that. You need to encourage one another. You need to support one another with gentleness. And finally, i got two minutes. <laughs> Hold on. Question number four. Look at verse eight. Here's question number four. Can you engage others with truth and with love? Verse eight is an amazing passage of Scripture. I, uh, mark this, circle it, memorize it. Memorize the whole chapter, but verse eight is amazing. So affectionately longing for you, 
This is Paul talking to the Thessalonians. We were so affectionately longing to you that we were willing to you to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but our own lives as well. You think about that. When Paul came to Thessalonica, his, his method of ministry was, obviously, I'm going to proclaim the gospel. The good news that Christ died, was buried, and rose again for the sins of the world, and by believing on him, they can have the gift of eternal life. Paul proclaimed that. He stood upon that. That was the, the mantra of his ministry. But notice what accompanied the proclamation of the gospel. And so sadly, friends, it's missing in, our, in the church today. We're all about pinning people down in the corner and, and, and shooting them with, with gospel verses and coming back to our, our harem and we, and, we, and we brag about the great opportunity we had to witness to somebody. And I wonder if we did not do more of inoculation than a witness when we do that. I wonder if we would communicate the truth of the gospel and communicate our own lives. Paul says, we were longing for you. The idea of this verse is that, that to, to affectionately long is to long for the love of somebody. To have a passionate love for their soul. And, and I wonder if we would approach our communities with that, if it wouldn't transform the church as well. Paul says it does. He says, not only did we give you the truth, impart the gospel to you, the gospel of God, but our own lives as well. The own lives... The word is suke, which is, is soul. It's the affective side of you. It's not the intellectual side. I imparted all my knowledge to you. I shared all the truth of the theology, the top shelf stuff that I had learned. I love to talk about that too. I love theology. I love theory. I love, I love, I love correlation and integration and, and all of those things. I, I, I'm addicted to it. But I can tell you this, the transforming power of the gospel happens when I begin to care about people for who they are. And, and, and take a time and, and, and get to know people and find out, tell me, what are the struggles and trials you've had in your life and how can I pray for you? How can I love you? Because I long for your soul. I long for your soul to be right with God. That's when churches will be changed. Those are four questions that you can ask yourself and it's my prayer that these four questions will become hallmarks for your ministry and your lives together. That you can have an effective ministry and it begins right here. And you can make the adjustments that you need. And you can invest in the lives of others for the glory of God. Let's pray. We're out of time. Lord God, it's just so good to be able to, to spend time in your word. It's, um, it, it penetrates the, the culture. It penetrates our, um, our situation in life. It penetrates the hardness of our hearts if we let it, Lord. And I just thank you for Paul's message to the Thessalonians and just how practical it is. Father, it's a high calling to, to live for you and to, to die to ourselves. And we can't do it apart from the working of the Holy Spirit. And so we pray that we would just yield to you. Lord, I thank you for each student here. I pray for their present um, and their preparation and their, and their future as well. Care for them in a special way, Lord. Use them in your kingdom for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.